Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen. Now, year in and year out, whenever we have Palm Sunday, we will look at one of the passages that deals with the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem or a passage that talks about the prophetic expectation of Jesus coming into Jerusalem as its king. We will then see in the passage how the people waved palm branches at him, threw down their cloaks before him in submission and proclaimed Hosanna and blessed him as the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And then after that, we will tie this in with our Palm Sunday celebration and then draw some application from that to our lives. And then we go out from the church service to continue to remember Christ and do all things that he has said. Now, this is in fact a good thing. In fact, the best way to really hear what God is saying is to exegetically and carefully dissect the passage that was read in order to reveal the purpose and the meaning of the passage. So I definitely affirm that that's the best way to teach from God's word. That is by going through the text carefully. However, in cases like this, where many of you already know the passage through many years of hearing it during Palm Sunday, perhaps it is better for us to engage in a different way about the topic of Palm Sunday so that our celebration today is more than just celebrating the events of that day, but help us then to also see the meaning, impact and the big picture of what Palm Sunday reveals to us. So, instead of focusing on that triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem when he came riding on a donkey, today we will be looking at a bigger picture of just what it means for Jesus to be this king who comes into Jerusalem. Today, we are going to look at the bigger picture of kingship. Now, in the Bible, God is the ultimate king. Part of God's sovereignty is his kingship over all creation. And we see this in Psalm 47. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over the nation. God sits on his holy throne. And again in Psalm 95, we see another declaration of God's kingship. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. When the prophet Isaiah beheld God in a vision, he said in Isaiah chapter 6, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And the Lord of hosts here means that he is the Lord of a great army. And so we see here that God is a powerful king, and he has a powerful army, a legion of angels that he can send out at any time to do his will. So, we can see, therefore, the events of the Bible history through the lens of God as a king. So when God sent Moses to Pharaoh to call him to free the people of Israel, God was coming to Pharaoh as a greater king demanding the obedience of this lesser king under him. And so this was the point of why God demonstrated his power through his judgment in Egypt. God 
reveals his sovereignty over all things. He isn't just king over man. He is king over all creation. And we also see this, right? When Pharaoh chased the people through the parted waters of the Red Sea in Egypt, and God finally destroyed him. And this shows us that God is a powerful king. He's more powerful even than Pharaoh, a self-styled king who styled himself as the son of the sun god. So God reveals himself that he's a mighty king who fights for his people and he delivers them. And this was to be the relationship between his people and their God who functions then as the king of this redeemed people. So this is why when we read the giving of the law to Moses, it is shaped in such a way that it sounds like a contract that kings would make with the people that they rule over. This type of contract called the suzerain vessel contract normally outlines the promises that the king makes to his people and his condition and his expectations of how the people are to respond. So therefore, he will then promise to protect and bless them under him. And so the people know what is expected of them as they serve this king who protects them. So this is why, while God promises to bless them and give them rest in the promised land where the milk and honey overflows, God also asks them to trust only in him to be faithful to him and to obey all that he has asked of them. And he can ask this because he is their king. So the covenant God made with Moses is actually a contract that stipulates his position as their king and they as his subjects. And so we see that this is the king who has promised to look after them and guarantee their safety and prosperity if they withhold their end of the contract and obey him. Now, later on, during the time of King David, King David acknowledged that the Israelite armies were God's army. In other words, he's saying God is the true king of Israel, and that's why the armies are his army. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, when David faced against the Philistine armies with Goliath, he did not fear, but instead proclaimed, You came to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defiled. Now this wasn't David proclaiming the strength of the Israelite army because they were covering in fear, not willing to stand up to Goliath. So David makes it clear that regardless of the strength of the Israelite army, God who is the king of this army, who is powerful, will give victory to that army of Israel. And so the idea here is that the victory depended on the strength of the king. And that's why we keep on seeing in the Old Testament, right, how the Israelites won in impossible battles, even when they were outnumbered and outmatched. It's because God is king, he's all-powerful, he is sovereign, and he rules over all things. So from here, we understand God as he has revealed himself to his people. God is a powerful king who fights for his people and that their relationship with him is based on a covenant of trust and obedience. And so kingship is part of God's own nature. 
So how did the people of Israel then treat their God who is also their king? We come to 1 Samuel chapter 8 and we see that despite God speaking through and ruling the people through the prophet Samuel, the people saw that Samuel was getting old and instead of trusting in God, they looked around them at the nations, ignored everything God had done for them and they asked for a king like the nations had so that that human king will rule over them. So God ex understands exactly what the people mean because he tells Samuel in 1 Samuel 8, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. The people have rejected God because they cannot relate to him ruling over them. And they want someone more like them to rule. The king like what the nations had, a man of flesh and blood. So while God has shown his goodness to his people and has always been faithful on his end of the covenant, they rejected him. In fact, what they wanted was to decide for themselves how to rule over their lives. They wanted a man like them to make this decision. And friends, this was the problem with Adam and Eve. They too wanted control over what they can and cannot do, and they rebelled against God. So this has been the problem with humanity in general. We are all rebels against God, our great King. So, can there be any hope for humanity as long as we refuse to accept God's kingship. Well, when Adam was created, he was given dominion over the earth. So this does actually imply some sense of rulership over this small slice of creation. So it's not wrong for us to see that mankind was created to reflect God in some way, and this includes the authority to rule, but under God. And this is what it means to be created in the image of God. The book of Daniel shows us that it was God who has placed the various kings and rulers in the world in order to rule it. God even used the Persian king Cyrus to bring his people back from exile into the promised land again. God is the one who gives the sword of authority to the rulers and powers so that they may, under God, judge and rule rightly and with wisdom. So it's right to see that God does allow for human governance. God sets up kings and rulers. And therefore, it is not wrong to say that mankind were created to rule, but we were created to rule under him. But if we look at the kings that we get, even those chosen from God's people like Saul and Solomon and the multitude of Davidic kings that followed him, we still see failures who cannot save their people. The problem of humanity is that when we come into power, we eventually become drunk on power and our sinful nature and we naturally want to push God away and become our own independent rulers apart from God. Even the best of them, King David, still sinned and fell short of this absolute goodness that God required of his king. 
He was the best that we had, but even he was not sufficient. So there is a problem with us humans and the rulership of God. So now as we see the dilemma with God's kingship and humanity's problem with sin, we realize that there is a problem. God created man to rule, but mankind is flawed. God wants our leaders to rule the world with equity and justice under him. Yet humans want to surpass their authority and rule as if they are gods themselves and because of that bring destruction on their people. So as long as this problem persists, there is absolutely no real hope for humanity in the long term. So what is the solution? And we start to see hints of it when God responded, when the people asked for a king like the nation in 1 Samuel. You see, God let the people choose their own king, King Saul, who ended up failing miserably. But actually, God had another plan where secretly he raised up this shepherd boy David to become king, a king after his own heart. And so we see from here, right, that not only isn't God against the idea of human kings, that was his plan for his people. God even promised David that there will come from him a descendant, a king who will be like a son to God, and this king then will reign on a throne that endures forever. Now, as we look to the history of the kings and leaders so far, how can this king that God brings through David be a king who can serve faithfully? All the kings before this have failed. And they failed because of the human nature of sin. So wouldn't this king that God brings also fail just as how even David failed? Well, we see a hint to an answer in the vision that was given to the prophet Daniel in chapter 7. God shows Daniel the hope that the people of Israel have, even when their king had failed them, led them astray into the exile in Babylon. God reveals that there will come a day when comes a person from the clouds of heaven, which means he's divine. But then he is like a son of man, which means he is human. And to this one who comes is granted all power and authority and he will be given dominion, glory and a kingdom. This person who was promised through the prophets was the God-man, the Messiah, the hope of the nation. This was the son of David that God has promised will have an eternal kingdom to whom God will be like a father, which implies that this Messiah to come will inherit God's kingdom, will sit on his throne, will rule on behalf of God as God's chosen king. So it is through this promised Messiah that God brings the hope and solution to the problem of God's rulership while still having a human king who is one of us as he had planned. So through this coming Messiah, who is both divine and human, the answer is God the divine will rule 
while at the same time being veiled in the flesh of a human. This Messiah that will come will be the means through which God will finally and fully tabernacle with his people, dwell with his people, and through that then, he can be fully their God where the people will know him and he will be physically present with them. So, as we come to understand the hope and solution that the coming of the Messiah brings, we can now come to Palm Sunday. And like a jigsaw puzzle, looking at the big picture at the back of the box, it will help us to put the pieces together. So how do the pieces fit together so that we can understand the true weight of Palm Sunday? On Palm Sunday, there were many people who heard about Jesus. Many would have witnessed the miracles and would have come to know that he does things that only God can do. Jesus forgave, uh, forgave sins, he cured sickness, he raised the dead, he even had power over the wind and the waves. So, as he comes into the city of Jerusalem, even though he comes humbly on the back of a donkey, many saw, understood and praised him and celebrating his coming. They understood at long last, this must be that promised Messiah. This is the hope of the nations. The only source of rulership or authority that is perfect and suitable for human flourishing as God has intended. Christ did not come to become a king in Jerusalem as the crowd would have thought. On Palm Sunday, Christ came to show that he is in truth the Messiah, the king of the world, who comes to solve the problem between God and men. He didn't come to solve the problem between the Romans and the Jews. And we know this to be true because Christ did not go to sit on that throne in Jerusalem on that day. Instead, ultimately, that procession led him to the cross to be exalted. At the cross, he would be crowned king with a crown of thorns. And he would hang there, bearing our sins in our place, under the judgment of God that we rightly deserve, with a sign above his head, meant to mock, but saying more than it meant, the king of the Jews. And God will declare that he really is that promised king, by raising him from the dead on the third day. He will ascend to God's right hand in glory and all authority in heaven and earth would be given to him. He is our king today. And one day he will again come to judge the world. And on that day, his kingship will be seen in all its fullness. And this is what Palm Sunday should help us to remember. Not only that Christ came riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, but that he finally was revealed to the world as God's king who has come to set the world right. So, as we come to a close today, let us remember. Palm Sunday is not just about remembering that Jesus came into Jerusalem, people were waving palms, 
and um, and he was riding on a donkey and things like that. But more than that, we are to know truly in our heart that the King has come. That Jesus is the King even today. So how do we apply these things? First of all, let us remember that the kingship of Christ is the solution to all the problems of the world. Our true hope is not in which politician will win our national elections. It's not whatever hopes we might place in Biden or Putin and what he decides to do with their nation. These are not the kings we should put our ultimate hope in. In fact, scripture tells us not to put our trust in princes. They are there to serve God, but they will not serve perfectly in a manner that will guarantee our well-being and our salvation. We must, as Christians, soundly place our hope in the kingship and leadership of Jesus Christ. And thus, patiently enduring the world, knowing that He is King, He is in charge. And our hope is that one day, He will return to put all things right. And the kingdom of this world will then become the kingdom of our God and His Christ, the Christ who shall reign forever and ever. Secondly, let us remember, we are therefore citizens of His kingdom, even now. And so as citizens of this kingdom, under this amazing king, shouldn't our response be to love and obey the king? There is no greater king that we can find than the one that God has worked throughout salvation history in the Bible to bring to us. And this also means that we should be taking up, therefore, the values of the kingdom. And these values are reflected in the person of Jesus. And if we call him king, and then we don't want to be like him, we don't want to obey him, we actually reject him, don't we? And to reject Jesus is to reject God and God's authority as king over your life. So, even as we look at Christ the King revealed at Palm Sunday morning, as we see that king who comes in his humbleness, a king who comes to serve, not to be served, a king who is gentle and lowly in heart, who promises rest to those who come to him, the faithful king who obeys God in all things and through him then brings salvation to his people. Should we not, as his people, follow the example that he set? Should we not we then take up this character unto our own self to mirror these things in our attitude in our lives? Because if we don't, we may not really be seeing him as our king. Thirdly, let us proclaim our King. Let us declare Him to the world. Jesus was revealed on Palm Sunday. There's no reason to keep Him hidden. And this is what Jesus wants us to do. And this is why when He gave the great commission to the disciples before He ascended into the heavenly place, He called on them to go forth and make disciples of all nations. And if you are a disciple, a member of his kingdom, then you too 
must go forth and make disciples of all nations by proclaiming his kingship. How can you call people to become the subject of God, to become his people, to sit under his king, if you are ashamed to proclaim Jesus as your king? And finally, if you are not in his kingdom, if you are someone who do not accept Jesus as your king, see from what we've learned today that on Palm Sunday, God has revealed his king, his Christ. So won't you, listening to what God has done, examine your heart and come to him today? There is no other better solution waiting for you because Christ is God's ultimate plan for blessing his people. Outside of this king, there is no hope. So, as we come to the end of the sermon, I would like to wish you all a happy Palm Sunday. May you proclaim the excellencies of your King, the Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, all the days of your life, even as we continue to meditate on what it means that Christ came on Palm Sunday, as you continue to pro progress through the Holy Week and think of all that God has done. So may then we be people who reflect on the kingship of Jesus through our words, thoughts and speech and what it means for us to be under this amazing king. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and we pray that you will help us to see that Christ is our king, that he demands our allegiance and that we must obey him in all things. Help us then to be more like him in character, in his obedience to God, in his love for your commandments, and in how he treated people. Help us therefore, Father, to change our lives so that we, as we go out into the world, will be seen as a follower of Christ. That we are your people in truth as well as in what we profess. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen.